Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. Among the new things that attracted my attention during my stay in the United States, none struck me more forcefully than the equality of conditions. I readily discovered what a prodigious influence this basic fact exerts on the workings of society. It imparts a certain direction to public spirit and a shape to laws, establishes new maxims for governments, and fosters distinctive habits in the governed. I quickly recognized that the influence of this same fact extends well beyond political mores and laws, and that it holds no less sway over civil society than over government. It creates opinions, engenders feelings, suggests customs, and modifies everything that it does not produce. So that was Alexis de Tocqueville, his opening, uh, the opening passage to democracy in America. Now, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be beginning, beginning my look at Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. This was published in, in 1835. Um, well, part one and another part was published in 1840. Uh, this, um, this was published when Alexis de Tocqueville was only 30 years old. So it's quite an outstanding achievement for such a young man to produce one of the greatest and most insightful works on the United States ever written, uh, and certainly one of the best books ever written about democracy. Uh, the quote I opened this episode with uh, sums up his thesis uh, and the rest of the book over the next 800 and some pages he develops this theme of what the equality of conditions means in American life, in American politics, in American culture, in American social values. Uh, what were his fears? What was his what was the promise of democracy? What was his fears about democracy? What uh, how democracy would become a global force? Uh, how he predicted that the how democracy could disrupt social life and these are all things he explores in great detail and this book stands up it it has never really gone out of date uh, of course things change and uh, the nature of American society has changed but the his fundamental observations I think very much can can be used for each generation when they look at at the American political system, more so than any American writer uh, writing about politics. Tocqueville seemed to understand America, maybe because he was writing from the outside. He was writing from an aristocratic point of view, uh, writing for a French audience, trying to understand this this country across the sea, this this longtime ally, um, you know, trying to come to terms with that and trying to come to terms with their own uh, democratic changes uh, brought about by the French Revolution and, and later movements for greater liberalism in, in France in the 19th century. Uh, you know, all this made his observation so much more acute, so much more significant than maybe someone like uh, Jefferson, who's kind of in the middle of it and, and in the process of it. It's a book that comes out long enough after the American Revolution that an observer can see the consequences of it. It's, but it's also someone writing right at the moment when America was becoming, at least, at least for white men, a democracy. 
And so it's a very youthful look at, at American democracy, but it's also uh, looking at the long-term influences of the American Revolution. And if you're one of the people like me who believes the American Revolution was a radical force, uh, a, a massive trans transform a transformative moment, uh, not in what it did, but what it opened the door for to, to happen in the future, uh, then a book like this really makes that clear that that however modest and moderate and virtuous the founders thought they were in their revolution by 1830, 1835, it was clear that they had opened the door much broader and Tocqueville saw it all. Tocqueville knew where America was going and I, every time I read this book, I'm just amazed at just how insightful he is. Now, my, my approach here is going to be roughly the same to what I've been doing throughout this podcast. Um, with, with novels, with, with stories, with short stories, it's, it's kind of easy just to chunk, cut off 100 pages and, and discuss it uh, and piece it together. With a coherent work like uh, Democracy in America, it's, you know, it, it takes some thought about how I'm going to divide this up. And, and approach it. I'm going to do it over eight episodes, um, so I'm going to stick to the basic 100-page uh, at a time format, but I think it's important to kind of approach each episode more more clearly thematically. And so um, in this first episode, so I, did, I broke it up into eight kind of themes that I think Tocqueville explores, and it briefly corresponds with the, the various arguments that Tocqueville makes throughout the book. Um, in the first four episodes, I'll look at the first volume of Democracy in America, which is a bit of a longer one. Um, but here I'll look at, um, first I'll look at, in, in this episode, look at the overall theme of the book, the overall argument of the book, followed it up by, uh, you know, looking at the concept of how he saw popular sovereignty and its significance in, in America. In the next episode, the second episode, I'll look at Tocqueville's views on the federal constitution and federalism. In the third, I'll look at his views on parties and the role of political parties and factions in democracy and why he thought they could threaten democracy and how they could perhaps be a strength to democracy. Um, and then in the fourth episode, we'll look at the more significant threats to democracy that he saw. I'll follow this up with the volume two episodes. Again, there'll be four of them. First, looking at uh, democratic culture. Then look at in episode six, of this series, uh, the sentimental, the kind of the mental and emotional aspects of democracy. Uh, in, in episode seven, it'll be the morality of democracy, the morals of democracy. And then in the final episode in this series, we'll look at democ democracy and institutions and associations. So I'm gonna be a little bit, try to be a little bit more thematic, even as I cover the material in each each section of the, of the book. So um, if you're reading along, just kind of, uh, you know, go at it with that, that that, rough, that plan in mind. And if you haven't read Democracy in America, do find a copy, any translation will do. I am reading the Library of American version, which has a new translation, Arthur Goldhammer's translation. And that was, um, I, I assume that was a new translation made for the Library of America. Yeah, on the title it says a new translation. So this was, uh, this came out in 2004. It's the 147th volume in the Library of America series. It's also, as far as I know, the only volume in that book by someone who's not an American. I mean, there are people who kind of have mixed identities, you know, Chandler's in there and, you know, Henry James was kind of spent most of his life in England. You have people like, like Lafcadio O'Hearn, but all of them have claims to be an American at their, at their core. Tocqueville never identifies an American. He, he was a Frenchman all, all of his short life. 
Um, but this book is so important, it almost has to be in this series, right? It's, uh, again, no one's done such a good job of understanding American democracy in the 19th century, and no book is as enduring in, in commenting on, on American ways of life, American society and culture, and how it's all tied into this revolutionary transformation in, in politics brought about by the American Revolution. Let's never forget that the United States is a revolutionary society. All right, let's just jump right into it. Um, in the introduction to Democracy in America, Tocqueville lays out his basic thesis, and he comes right out with it, that what's really distinctive about the United States is this, what he called the equality of conditions, right? And of course, he's only talking about white men here, but um, you know, that's something we always have to keep in mind. I'm not gonna always repeat myself on that point except where it's relevant to do so um, when I'm really going to focus on what he says about race, what he says about gender. But uh, he is, of course, talking about the equality of conditions for, for, for white men. He's interested in how this came about, why it exists compared to in Europe, which has had very entrenched class structures. And of course, an aristocracy was the best example of that. So how it came about and then how it affected the politics of, of America. So he, he introduces that right away. But he also sees the future. He predicts a wave of, of democratization across the world. So he sees America as, as a lesson for the rest of the world in the warnings, the pitfalls, the opportunity, the potential of democracy. But more, mostly he sees it just as an inevitable thing that's, that's sweeping the world in, in the 19th century. He, of course, lived, lived through the French Revolution. Well, he, lived, he was born in the Napoleonic era, but he, of course, knows about the French Revolution. He saw the aftermath of it, the return of the monarchy, but also the resistance to that, right? This was published in 1835. France had a revolution in 1830 when this book was being conceived. And, of course, you had, um, this is just a mere decade before the, the revolutions of 1848. So it's not hard to see... Uh, the emergence of, of a mass culture, a, mass, a much more participatory politics. And if you were to look at England, you would see the trend towards greater democratization, again, for, 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 for men. Um, but he's seen this as a wave that's going to spread the world. So um, what is true in America can be true elsewhere. And so this is a novel, or not a novel, this is a book for the world, for the world watching America. And he's making a case for the significance of America because it is ground zero most of, of this emerging democratic culture. He writes after reviewing the, the kind of the broad history of political systems in Europe and the, the nobility in particular, he writes, everywhere diversity of historical incidents has redoubted to democracy's benefit. Everyone played a part, those who strove to ensure democracy's success as well as those who never dreamed of serving it, those who fought for it as well as those who declared themselves its enemies, driven pell-mell down a single path, all were towards a single goal, some in spite of themselves, others unwittingly, blind instruments in the hand of God. The gradual development of the equality of conditions is therefore a provincial fact. It has the essential characteristics of one. It is universal, durable, and daily proves itself to be beyond the reach of man's power. Not a single event, not a single individual fails to contribute to its development. Is it wise to believe that a social movement has originated so far in the past can be halted by the efforts of a single generation? Does anyone think that democracy, having destroyed feudalism and vanquished kings, will be daunted by the bourgeois and the rich? Will it stop now that it has become so strong and its adversaries so weak? Now that's a profound observation here because he sees the fight 
of democracy, not just against feudalism. He sees it against class structure in general, against the bourgeoisie itself. So I think there's a space for, for even uh, socialists or anarchists or people to find uh, inspiration in this book because Tocqueville is seen in democracy, the shattering, the breaking down, the muffling of, of all class distinctions, right? Um, even to the degree of economics. I mean, that's the foundation of the argument he's making is the equality of conditions. It's not equality of status. It's not equality before the law. It's not equality uh, of voting rights. It's equality of conditions, right? Uh, a relatively muffled class structure. Now, obviously, in the United States, we don't have that anymore if we ever did. Right? And of course, if you include blacks and women, the United States never really had that. So again, I, I said I want to keep repeating this on this point, but this is talking about for white men. Um, but compared to the, he's comparing this to the old kind of aristocracies of Europe, where essentially uh, a few people had all the money and everyone else was dirt poor, right? We may be moving back to that realm, not a strict uh, feudalism, but we're finding money concentrated in families. Uh, we're finding it becoming more and more entrenched. And that's a, that I think Tocqueville would say is a significant threat to, to democracy. And maybe we're seeing a change in America as a result of, of entrenched wealth. That's something we want to think about as we look at this, this book. Um, now, then in the, the rest of the introduction, after kind of setting this up, this kind of wave uh, that democracy is the wave of the future, he starts to break down some of the themes of, of the book. Um, and I'll just focus on one major idea he makes, and his major, if not a criticism, just his kind of concern about democracy. And that is, as you have this equality of conditions, you kind of lose exceptionalism, like individual exceptionalism. Uh, he, let me just read the quote and then maybe we can think about it. Quote, to be sure, a democratic state constituted in this way would not stand still, but change in the body of society would be orderly and progressive. Such a society would be less brilliant than an aristocracy, but also less plagued by misery. Pleasures would be less extreme, prosperity more general. Knowledge would be less exalted, but ignorance more rare. Feelings would be less passionate and habits milder. There'd be more vices and fewer crimes. The nation taken as a whole would be less brilliant, less glorious, and perhaps less powerful, but the majority of citizens would be better off. People would prefer peace to war. Not out of despair of better living, but out of appreciation of living well. End quote. So basically he's saying you're not going to get the extremes of, of wealth um, in a society that has equality of conditions. is almost implied. But along that, you're not going to get extremes of, of education or extremes of even creativity. I mean, there's an overall kind of critique here that there's there's a bit of a, of a banality to to democratic culture and that it kind of gravitates towards a mean. People don't want to be necessarily very exceptional, right? They'll, they'll watch sports or read newspapers or, uh, you know, talk about, you know, gossip about the regular stuff. That's the conversations. Every, everyone's kind of a salesperson. So everyone is thinking about their audience when they're talking. Uh, the idea that you would buy or sell ideas, that's kind of an American idea, right? That, that what's true is what's what's what you know, even go to Henry William James, right? What's what's true is what works, right? What works in in, in these democratic cultures is, is what's popular and what's accepted. And so you end up with this kind of uh, a, 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 is banality the right word here? Kind of a kind of a middling of 
of extremes. But in an more aristocratic culture, you may not get as many people educated, but the people who are educated will be extremely educated. They'll have you know, five languages, and they'll have all their time to write, and they'll produce great works of literature and philosophy. You know, they'll be like Thomas Aquinas, write 50 volumes on, on theology. Right? That, that wouldn't happen in America. Instead, you'll get pop, um, popular pamphlets about you know, how, how prayer will help you stop drinking or something. Um, you know, I'm sure we can think of a lot of different examples of this kind of thing. Um, so all of this is kind of sort of is, is laid out in the introduction. And even if you don't read the rest of the book, I, I think this introduction is certainly required reading. For, for just anyone who wants to, to understand America and think about it and, and kind of try to interpret it. Um, very, very insightful and, and, and it's, really, it's really well written. I don't know if it's just this translation. I, I have looked at other translations before and you know, I, I didn't think they were hard to read, but this is a really, really elegant and smooth translation. Um, very easy to read, very, makes it a very quick read. Um, Tocqueville does write for a fairly general, general audience, I think. All right, so um, after this introduction, we're going to look at five chapters. That'll get us to about page one, 110 in this particular edition of Democracy in America. Um, he starts with some basic facts about um, just the, the geography of, of, of North America, and that's what chapter one is. It's called The Outward Configuration of North America. And a lot of it is just the, the basic facts of where the rivers are, where the lakes are, where, um, um, you know, the mountains and all that stuff. Um, but he does get to Indians. Like, like as we saw with Jefferson, there was a t there's a tendency in Tocqueville here to associate the Indians with the natural environment. And of course, that's part of the American kind of ideology of the time of the Indians, that they're kind of of nature, of the wilderness. In fact, I think Tocqueville here directly says the, you know, America was a wilderness, despite acknowledging that there was a population that, that lived there. Um, the implication being that they're not transforming environment. They're they're simply of nature. That's obviously not true, but um, a common idea at the time, something we saw quite a lot in Jefferson's thinking about Indians. Here is some of what he says about Indians. Um, the social state of these people also differed in several respects from anything to be seen in the old world. They seem to have multiplied freely in the wilderness without contact with more civilized races. They therefore exhibited none of those dubious and incoherent notions of good and evil, no sign of that profound corruption that generally accompanies the ignorance and crude manners of once civilized nations that have reverted to barbarism. The Indians owed nothing except to themselves. His virtues, his vices, his prejudices were his own. He had grown up in the savage independence of his nature. Um, this is very similar to kind of what Jefferson says, although I think it's, it's articulated a lot better here. Um, this, this means they're not, they're not American Democrats, right? There is the extremes of, of prowess and skill, while the kind of democratic American gravitates towards the mean, uh, towards the middle, in this quote-unquote barbarism, you, you have this really um, kind of strong individualism, virtues, vices, and prejudices were his own, right? Unlike the American Democrat where there's this kind of tendency to find that mean and, and affiliate with it, to, find, you know, to go to it. And there's this, you know, that's, he almost thinks in a way that individualism is more achievable in, in an aristocratic culture, you know, true, like, individual ideas. He's going to have a whole conversation about individualism later and what it means in a country that does have this, this gravitational pull towards mediocrity. Um, 
the Indian though doesn't seem to have that because of this because there, there's not that 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 civilization is not pulling them to the to the center. Um, they they also but one thing they do have in common with the democratic American is is the lack of of, of class. Quote, the Indians, though all ignorant and poor, are also all equal and free. All right, next chapter. Um, on the point of departure and its importance for the future of the Anglo-Americans. Um, so what's his point of departure? Well, he's looking at the origins of, of the American. A man is born. His first years pass unnoticed in the pleasures and travails of childhood. He grows up. Manhood begins. At last, the doors of the world open to receive him. He enters in contact with his fellow man. People begin to study him and think they can perceive the seeds that will develop into the vices and virtues of maturity. This, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, is a great error. End quote. So um, his point being the origins are important, right? You're, you're not born necessarily as a blank slate, and neither is America. And so he actually does care about how they got there. And it's really key to this overall equality of conditions, this this frontier experience. And, and that's mostly what this chapter is about, the, the migrations of, of people, uh, a relatively common culture. He, he does downplay a little bit the diversity of early America, seeing it largely as an Anglo-American um, extension of, 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 of England. But uh, the important thing is, is that there is relative lack of diversity in terms of language and religion, but also of class status. Again, the classes become more muted in, in America. You still have some class, right? But it's it's not as extreme as what you get in, in Europe. Now he doesn't, he's, I think his main interest in this chapter is eventually on the like the New England town. Uh, he does mention the South though, and he talks a little bit of Virginia, but he morally, most kind of re wants to ignore it because of slavery. He says, slavery, as I'll explain later, dishonors labor. It introduces idleness into society, and with it, ignorance and pride, poverty and luxury. It saps the powers of the mind and lulls human activity to sleep. The influence of slavery combined with English character explains the mores and social state of the South. And that's mostly what he says about it. And then he jumps as quickly as he can to New England, because New England really fits what he's trying to say here about kind of the more homogenous social conditions, the, the muted class, the, the focus on community, the focus on the kind of public life of all people. I mean, that's the best model we have in colonial America of, of kind of an equality of conditions is something like New, uh, Puritan New England. Um, he even goes so far as to say that like Puritanism in America, at least, is not is, is more a political thought than even a religious thought. The religious side of it is not as important. And his evidence for this is the formation of charters. That when they came, they formed a charter, and new towns were formed on a charter. And you have the town hall and the, the town hall and the the church as centers of, of public life. And this then creates the foundation for greater freedoms, greater political independence in those colonies than in other other colonies, the southern colonies and the colonies of other other countries. And when he talks about the creation of law in New England, he, he noticed the the tendency to have a lot of regulation of social life, a lot of, of oversight of social life, but then the actual implementation implementation of the law being rather um, looking kind of banal and not extreme. Right? He writes Blasphemy, witchcraft, adultery, and rape were punishable by death. A son who failed to honor his father and mother was subject to the same penalty. Thus, the rules, laws of a rude and half-civilized people were carried over into the society of enlightened spirits and gentle mores. 
Never was the death penalty more frequently prescribed by statute and more seldom enforced. The men who framed these penal codes were primarily concerned with maintaining the moral order and the sound moral mores of their society. They therefore repeatedly intruded upon the realm of conscience, and virtually no sin was exempt, exempt from the scrutiny of the courts. So that's, that's, again, something that's going to lead to a greater concern about one's uh, inner life, the, their morals, and, and this kind of desire to pull everyone to, to the mean, right? But again, it's not done with a heavy hand, right? It's, it's done through law, but the real regulation seems to be social and, and, and within the community rather than through the, the courts of law. Now, what's the ultimate conclusion here in this chapter? Well, it's, it essentially comes down to this. In Europe, you had a political system, the monarchy that was established, and this communicated down into society and helped frame society and form society. In America, you had communities first. They came as communities, as families. They laid claim, and from there built up the commonwealth, built up the state. So it's... Um, as we say, the local community before the county, the county before the state, and the state before the, the union. In Europe, it's you have the monarchy that goes back from time immemorial, and they kind of define the social arrangements from below. Now, in, in reality, it's more complex, right? Uh, but, you know, that's his, that's his basic concept here in this. And so he thinks that this um, spirit of, of liberty... Um, and the overall equality is there in some in some manner in the colonial period, right? And we can nitpick the history of this, I'm sure. Uh, there's been plenty of, you know, stuff written. And we could, again, bring up slavery, bring up the treatment of Indians, bring up the treatment of women, talk about the realities of class in these areas. But, you know, let's, let's look at Tocqueville, at what he's trying to say, and, and acknowledge his evidence is incomplete. Right, but I, I still think he's very much onto something here in terms of the broad contrasts of of Europe and America. So chapter three is called the social state of the Anglo-Americans. So beyond the origin, what is it about like the social structure in America that that creates this democracy? Where does it come from? Uh, and he he does think it's something in the law and in the legislation that has promoted this. And a lot of what he focuses on here is inheritance law. Right, because America didn't have primogeniture in in England. You know, the title, the land went to the eldest son, or the eldest. You know, I guess if there was only girls, it went to the to to the girl. Um, but in the United States, you have this splitting up of land, right? So what you had, you you don't get these large estates then, or if you do have large estates like early on, they tend to get broken up over time, right? Um, and he says this goes even farther into. He really sees the connection between the law and people's kind of consciousness about themselves and their their, their values about each other, which I think is kind of uh, interesting. I, um, you know, how does one's kind of legal framework and and especially something like inheritance law, but also in many other types of law, whether it's marriage law or something, really affect how we live our lives. You know, certainly marriage law seems to have a big effect like this. He writes, but the law of equal partition does not exert its influence solely on the fate of property. It also works upon the very soul of the owner whose passions are enlisted in its behalf. It, it is the indirect effects of the law that rapidly destroy great fortunes and especially great estates. Among the people whose land of, law of inheritance is based upon primogeniture, landed estates pass undivided from generation to generation. As a result, the family spirit 
in a sense, becomes materialized in the earth. The family represents the land. The land represents the family. The land perpetuates the family's name, its origins, its glory, its power, and its virtues. It is imperishable witness to the past and a precious guarantee of continued existence. Now, that's the heart of the chapter, um, but basically his point is there's never an aristocracy, so you can never get those extremes of, of wealth. But um, also key here is like land doesn't matter as much, right? You buy a house, you move, right? You know, your parents die, you inherit their house maybe, well, you sell it, right? And you buy your house somewhere else where you want to live. You're not tied to the, to the land. But in an aristocratic culture, you know, these states have names, right? That's a good ex example of that, right? I guess Jefferson named his estate, but that's not the common American thing to do, right? You don't name your estate. You name the, that's in Europe, right? Where the estates have these kind of odd names because they're there forever and they'll be in the family forever and they become part of the family identity. Um, what else is in here? There's a little subsection, the political consequences of the social state of Anglo-Americans. A lot of little, like almost a, a list he gives here. Um, okay, so once you have this equality of social standings, he argues that then you're going to get equality in everything else. You're going to get equality in, in laws, for instance, or in rights. Rights must be given either to every citizen, each citizen, or none. Um, he's concerned here about self-defense. He says, the citizens are all equal. It becomes difficult for them to defend their independence against the aggressions of power because none of them is strong enough to fight alone with advantage. The only guarantee of liberty is for everyone to combine forces. But such a combination is not always in evidence. We're going to talk about association later on. I think he contradicts this a little bit later on when he goes at length arguing that Americans are always forming associations and, and clubs and groups. You know, if there wasn't uh, an army, I'm sure there would be a lot more militias, right? And a lot more gun clubs and things like that than there already are. Um, chapter four is called On the Principle of Popular Sovereignty in America. And that, that's kind of what I wanted to title this, this episode. And this opening theme is, is popular sovereignty and what, why it's important for, for America and Tocqueville's view of America. But actually Tocqueville doesn't say much about it. He doesn't really need to demonstrate it. He just states it as fact that in America, sovereignty is in the, in the people, right? This is, of course, compared to Europe, where sovereignty is in the king, maybe. Maybe a little bit later, you could say sovereignty is in the nation. But that's not the case in America. In America, political sovereignty is in the people overall. And this comes about through to voting rights, the, the fact that all, all men can vote. And he does emphasize here the, the evolution of, of universal manhood suffrage the broadening of voting rights, the detaching of property qualifications from, from voting rights. Um, and he just sees it in every aspect of American life. In our own day, the principle of popular sovereignty has been elaborated in practice in every conceivable way. It has distangled itself from the many fictions which it has elsewhere carefully been wreathed. It adapts its form to the necessities of each particular case. Sometimes the people as a body make the laws as in Athens. Other times deputies created by universal suffrage represent them and act in their name under their almost immediate surveillance. A very, very short chapter, but, but a key uh, you know, thing he has to establish uh, for the rest of his book. 
And then uh, the last chapter I want to look at today is chapter five, the necessity of studying what happens in particular states before speaking of the government of the union. So this is going to feed into the next episode because the next episode we're going to look at Tocqueville's ideas of federalism, its strengths, its weaknesses, and his view particularly of the U.S. Constitution. Um, but he says, no, we can't start there. We have to start bottom up because, again, the community makes the county, the county makes the state, the state makes the union. It's not... Um, it's not the Constitution makes the communities. It's bottom-up, right? So he starts with the local, and he looks at the state in this chapter. It's a fairly long chapter, but I think I can fairly quickly sum it up. So I guess the key problem here in this chapter that's explored is if you have a system where authority and sovereignty come from the bottom up, uh, why does anyone follow laws, right? If, if like, if you have a tier tyrant, right, with a the biggest sword. He passes a law and you follow it. If you don't, you're killed or whatever. So how with a communal society, and he uses that term communal a lot. I think he maybe borrows it from the French. Um, he actually, so he got the locality, this is Tocqueville's words, the locality, commune, is the only association that is so much a part of nature that wherever men come together, towns spontaneously arise. Communal society therefore exists among all people, regardless of their customs or laws. It is man who creates kingdoms and republics. The community seemed to stem directly from the hands of God. But if communities have existed since they were men, local independence is a rare and fragile thing. So that seems to be just his observation about the realities in Europe. That, yeah, you have towns, but those towns aren't independent, right? They don't have their own laws, their own customs, their own traditions, and things like that. But you do in America. Now, why? Well, you have institutions. Um, and he says, local institutions are to liberty what elementary schools are to knowledge. They bring it to within the reach of the people. So it is a participant, like at the state, you have participatory, or at the level of the town, you have participatory democracy through these institutions, right? Your public school, your, uh, your, your city hall, right? Your very civic associations, which isn't his focus here, but they will be in other chapters. Um, now, when he gets to the question of, of how town life is managed, um, this is, this is the center of, of American democracy, the, of American politics, is the town, right? But it's, you know, it, it's still, he's wondering why do people follow laws? In the, in, the, in the European tradition and the aristocratic society, you follow the laws because uh, someone who's better than you or richer than you or greater than you or has better title than you says you must follow this law. Um, that doesn't work here. He asks, why then does the individual obey society and what are the natural limits of his obedience? He answers, he obeys society not because he is inferior to those who rule it or less capable of governing himself than anyone else, but because union with his fellow man seems useful to him and because he knows that such union cannot exist without a regulatory power. In everything to do with the duties of citizens to one another, he has therefore become subject. In everything that regards himself alone, he remains master. He is free and owns an account of his actions only to God. Whence this maxim, the individual's best as well as the only judge of his own interest, and society has the right to direct his actions only when he feels injured by his activities or when it requires his cooperation. This doctrine is universally, universally accepted in the United States. And again, he repeats that while in France, it's the state that kind of creates, reforces and regulates these communities. In America, it's the communities that, that kind of create the state or create the, eventually the union. Uh, then he goes on a, a bunch more details about the, the nitty-gritty of governance. And one thing that really amazed him about America was because officials are elected, 
there's corruption, but corruption isn't seen as a serious threat to to civic life or to people's lives because there are elections and you always just get rid of the person the next time around, right? It's in Europe where you have kind of entrenched power in positions. Corruption becomes a destabilizing force. It becomes something that's a real trauma, right? So there has to be much more regulation from the top on officials, local officials or whatever. But in America, the local officials just don't get, the corrupt officials don't get voted in or the ones who don't follow the laws don't get voted in. And it's the same with laws, right? If a law in a monarchy or an aristocratic society is damaging or corrupting to people, it will it'll kind of get stuck there, right? And it becomes a very challenge to get rid of that. In a democracy, you just kind of change the law. He talks about, in, I think in a later chapter, just how laws change so fast in America that it's almost kind of hard to keep up with that. But that's, it's because there's a kind of this constant liquidity to, to, um, to the laws and the governance. And it actually creates kind of a proliferation of laws, but then some of those laws may not be enforced because people just don't want to enforce them anymore, right? So what you get is instead of a like a, a systemic centralization, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to what he says here about the states, instead of a uh, kind of a systemic centralization, like you do have in, in the absolute monarchies, right, where there's the king, and the king has his officials, and the official they appoint the governors, and the governors rule on behalf of the king. That's kind of a systemic centralization. Uh, the United States, it's it's bottom up, but it, so instead it's it's kind of a administrative centralization and he thinks that's more likely in a democratic state um, um, partially this is due to um, like especially at the state level that you, the kind of the importance of like an elected governor or at the union level at the federal level the importance of an elected president to kind of be the representative of the people right this is in a governor in, in aristocratic monarchical France isn't a representative of of the people, right? So he's he's just an agent of the king. He's representative of, of the monarchy. Um, and so he's less essential of a figure. It's less, you know, it's not important who the governor is. Um, you know, I, I live in, I'm living in China now, obviously, and I, you know, asked the students, you know, who's who's like the, the governor of the local province, and, and they didn't really know. And some of them, they looked it up on their phones eventually. But, you know, it, you know, you, you ask the average American who the governor is of their state, they, they probably know, right? And they probably have an opinion about him and know if they're going to vote for him the next time or not. But it's more than just the fact that you'll have a position that's kind of centralized. It's, it's that, you know, when you have participatory government through laws and things, people are going to create laws. And, and those, if those laws aren't enforced, then and the people want them enforced, then there's going to be some kind of overturn in, in leadership. Uh, here's what he says about the aristocratic kind of structure of, of cent like centralization under uh, the monarchy. In the old monarchy, the king alone made law. Below the sovereign power stood the half-shattered remnants of provincial institutions. Those institutions were incoherent, poorly organized, and often absurd. In the hands of the aristocracy, they had served as times of instrument uh, of opposition. Um, now, where is that opposition going to come from in a democracy, right? So, yeah, let's say you have a, a king, he appoints a governor of some province, and there's a local kind of nobility there that don't like that governor or opposes the king. They may organize some kind of resistance to that, right? How, that doesn't come in these kind of bottom-up organized democracies because of popular sovereignty, of course. That's the, this kind of guiding principle. 
those local institutions are all created by the people, as are the governor. So this kind of creates a even a greater centralization than what you'd get in in, in a monarchy, right? And I think this is something that can be encouraging to maybe the anarchists who, who get that question like, is an anarchy just chaos or disorder, right? And of course, that any anarchist would be able to respond to that saying, well, of course, anarchists believe in kind of bottom-up order and absence of hierarchy and all that. And, you know, here's Tocqueville saying, ideally, right, you actually get more order out of something that's bottom-up. It's more chaotic if it's being imposed from the top because... There's no kind of unity to the system in terms of, of sovereignty. There's there's competing sovereignties. There's um, no way of just electing out people you disagree with, and that creates more disorder and 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 chaos, and eventually more actual less centralization, less administrative centralization. Um, it's centralized on the map, right? It's centralized on the, if you draw the chart, right? You got the king and everything, but. It, you know, the democracy is is more centralized in fact administratively. Um, now, in the next episode, I'm going to put an end to this for now, but in the next episode, I'm going to try to talk about what Tocqueville says about, about, the, about federalism, right? That's going to complete part one of book one of Democracy in America. It's pretty much all about um, the federal constitution. There's a few other issues here about the judges, um, but it comes down to really about the constitution and the federal government and federalism. So that's going to be our question for next time. What are Tocqueville's views of federalism and how does he see that connecting with American democracy and the themes of popular sovereignty that he introduced in the earlier part of the book? So if you're reading along, think about that and, and be ready to talk about that next time. So um, thanks as always for listening. I'm going to you know, write down my notes about uh, the next part of Democracy in America and come back and give you my thoughts on it. Thanks for listening. Um, let me know what you think. If there's anything big I missed, I'm sure there's a lot I've just skimmed over or, or didn't talk about adequately. Uh, please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast uh, 100 at gmail.com. Um, thanks as always for listening. See you next time with part two of my thoughts on Democracy in America. Discover old tip is a fake Far from the battle A war cry and drum He sits in his cabin Drinking bad rum <laughs>